Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Yesterday's record-breaking 2,000-point drop in the Dow yesterday, which was a record high for the number of points lost in a single day, not a percentage record, uh, was followed by today's 1,167-point rally in the Dow. It would have been a record, but for the record that we just set, I think a week ago, when we rallied 1,200 or so points. But remember, the day of that rally, I mentioned on this podcast that rallies of that magnitude are more common in bear markets than they are in bull markets. And that's what we're in, I think, despite the fact that uh, the major averages are still not down 20%, excluding the Russell 2000, which is down more than 20%. So that one is in bear market territory, as uh, is uh, the transports, which is a smaller index. And of course, the financials are in bear markets. But the other indexes still managed to avoid officially moving into bear market territory. Uh, But that should come relatively soon. Oh, and by the way, on the Russell 2000, even though that had the biggest move by far yesterday. The rut was down a lot more than the S&P or the Dow or the NASDAQ yesterday. Today's rally was far less impressive. You had the Dow and the S&P, they were up about 5%, but the Russell 2000 only rallied by about 2.85%. So about two thirds of the rally in the larger stocks. And again, this is the index that is most reflective uh, of the U.S. economy, and this is by far the weakest. Today's 1,167-point gain, if you just look at it, you don't realize how it was accomplished because it was a roller coaster ride. The market gapped up. In fact, at one point before the open, the Dow futures were limit up. They were locked limit up, just like they were locked limit down the day before. But they opened, I think the Dow was up about 800 or so on the open. I'm not sure if it quite hit uh, up a thousand. 
And then it had a big sell-off and it went to down 100 to 200 points. So the entire rally was lost. We went down 1,000 points. And then we came back up and closed up better than 1,000 points. And the catalyst for both the jump in the morning and the late-day comeback was talk of a massive fiscal stimulus coming from the government to deal with the problems uh, supposedly from the coronavirus. So it's the promise of stimulus, artificial stimulus from the government that is why the market rallied. Of course, though, any fiscal stimulus automatically applies monetary stimulus too, because how else is the fiscal stimulus paid for? It's paid for by the Fed. The Fed ends up doing more QE to buy all the bonds that have to be sold to finance the stimulus. Now, there are several forms that the stimulus is supposedly coming in, although we don't have any details yet. There's no actual plan that has been released. There were rumors last night, and I mentioned that on the podcast, and that's why we got that opening pop. But then when the market sold off because there was no concrete plan actually revealed, that's when you had all these statements coming out from the White House about how they got this plan, and that's what sparked the reversal uh, in the market, and we were able to close up near the highs. But it seems like the centerpiece for the stimulus plan is a payroll tax holiday. The rumor I heard from the White House was that a, there would be a complete elimination of the payroll tax, which is what, about a 15% tax, uh, half paid by the employee, half paid by the employer. Of course, it's all played by the employees. That's just a political gimmick uh, to make people think they're getting something for nothing because the portion that the employer pays is money that he otherwise would have paid directly to his worker in the form of wages, but the government requires that that percentage of his wages be sent directly to the government. And they did that to make uh, the employees who are the voters think they were only paying half the cost of Social Security when in fact they're paying the entire cost. And of course, if you're self-employed, like a lot of people are now in the gig economy, you're driving an Uber, right? You're paying both the employer and the employee cost directly. Uh, so it's there, it's more transparent as opposed to when you're working for an employer for wages. Uh, a lot of people think they're getting something for nothing, but of course they're not. But the idea behind the stimulus would be that between now and the end of the year, neither the employer nor the employee would be sending in any money for the payroll tax. And I think they're saying that would be about a $300 billion stimulus, I guess, between the time it's enacted and the end of the year, however many months that ends up being. That is an enormous amount of fiscal stimulus in a very short period of time. I mean, first of all, if the U.S. economy is in such great shape as Donald Trump believes it is, why does it need this emergency stimulus that is aimed directly at consumers? I mean, after all, oil prices just collapsed. That in and of itself is a massive stimulus to consumers because the money that they save on cheaper energy is now available to be spent elsewhere. Uh, but no, uh, Trump thinks that we need this massive stimulus. And I think, again, the stimulus is maybe aimed more at the stock market because, you know, they're tired of waiting for the Federal Reserve to come with more uh, monetary stimulus. They know that if they come with more fiscal stimulus, they force the Fed to provide more monetary stimulus. 
stimulus because there's no other way to pay for it. Uh, so this stimulus, of course, is designed to prop things up uh, between now and the election. I think Trump is particularly concerned now that the betting markets have Trump as an underdog now to get reelected as opposed to the favorite. So this is supposed to uh, help his chances. But of course, the stimulus is not going to help the economy. You don't help the economy by running deficits, printing money. I mean, if that worked, right, all these banana republics would have booming economies. They don't. What this is going to do is, A, it's going to increase the budget deficits because the government is going to collect less in taxes, right? If they're going to cut the payroll taxes, uh, they don't have money to make the Social Security uh, payments because supposedly the money that the government collects in Social Security taxes is used to pay the people who are collecting Social Security benefits, right? That's the Ponzi-like nature of the program. Well, what happens if you stop collecting the revenue, yet people are still getting all their Social Security benefits? Well, the way it would happen in practice is they would dip into these so-called phony trust funds, right? The Social Security trust funds are full of IOUs uh, to the government, right? The government writes itself an IOU. So it's not really an asset, but they pretend it's an asset, right? If, if, if you write a check to yourself, it's not an asset to you. If you write a check and give it to somebody else, then the check is somebody else's asset because it's your liability. But if you write a check to yourself, and it, it's not your asset if it's simultaneously your liability. And so that's what happens when government trust funds own bonds. You know, if, if a private citizen owns a treasury bond, it's an asset to the private citizen because it's a liability to the government. But if the government owns its own IOUs, they cancel each other out. So while it can be an asset for me to own a treasury, when the Social Security Trust Fund owns a treasury, it's not an asset, which means there's nothing in the trust fund. But the mechanism would be that if there wasn't any revenue coming in to Social Security, they would tap these so-called trust funds where the Social Security Trust Fund would then sell treasuries that it holds into the market to get the cash that it needs uh, to pay Social Security bills. Well, who's gonna buy the treasuries that the Social Security Trust Fund is selling? The Federal Reserve, of course. There's gonna be an entire QE program just dedicated to buying up all these treasuries to keep them off the market, to keep them from pushing interest rates up. Now, of course, the Social Security Trust Fund selling treasuries is no different than the Treasury selling treasuries. So it's basically the same thing, which is why the trust funds uh, are a mirage just to create the false sense that there's actually some backing uh, to Social Security when there's not. But what it means is that more Treasury debt will need to be monetized by the Fed. So what this stimulus really amounts is QE, right, for the public, because the public gets a tax cut in the form of a payroll tax holiday, and then the Federal Reserve has to monetize the Social Security benefits. So this is direct stimulus. It's like helicopter money. This is what I said was coming. It's not good for the economy, right? What's going to happen? In addition to bigger deficits and more QE, now Americans are going to have more money in their pockets, and they're going to spend it on more imported products, which is what Americans spend their money on. So not only do we get bigger budget deficits, but we get bigger trade deficits. So more deficits, more money printing, that is not good for the economy. But if you look at the way the markets reacted to it, the dollar surged today. The dollar index was about up one and a half percentage points. We had a 
big decline in the treasury bond market. Remember yesterday, we had all time record lows in yields. The yield on the 10 year got down to about 0.4, just actually less than 0.4 on the low. And today the yield is all the way back up to 0.8. Now 0.8 is still a pretty low yield, but it's double, double the yield from yesterday's low. Similar uh, in the 30 year, 30 year yields yesterday got all the way down to 0.93. That was the low. And today we closed at about 1.3. So a very significant increase in the yield on 30 year bonds, not quite as big as the doubling in the 10 year. But one of the reasons that you had surging bond yields and a big jump in the dollar was the expectation that this stimulus was going to be good for the U.S. economy. And so the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, stimulus is going to help the economy. Well, that's good for the dollar. And I think this backup in yields was also seen as being a good sign for the dollar, a strength in the economy. And, and so people piled into the dollar. At the same time, gold prices dropped about $30 an ounce. We got back below 1650 or just barely below 1650 again on the perception of a strength in the economy, rising, rising interest rates. But the reality is this stimulus plan is not good for the economy. It is not going to stop the recession from coming. All it's going to do is create bigger budget deficits, bigger trade deficits, force the Federal Reserve to print even more money to do a larger QE program. All of this is decisively bearish for the U.S. dollar and bullish for gold. The knee-jerk reaction is the opposite of what should actually be happening, which is typical for the markets. And you know, another potentially ominous I know is a blow-off top in the bond market because yesterday's move followed by today's move, it may be that we finally saw the low in yields and the high in bond prices for a bull market that's about 40 years in the making. Now, let's see what happens tomorrow if we have another significant move up in yields and down in bond prices tomorrow. That will uh, solidify the case that yesterday was a blow-off, a climactic end to the biggest bond bull market turned into a mania ever. But if we have peaked in bond prices and bottomed in yields, that is very, very significant. Because if now we're going to have rising interest rates, that is a big problem for a country as highly indebted as the United States. And I don't think interest rates are going to be rising because of higher expectations for growth it's going to be based on higher expectations for inflations, which right now are at all-time lows. In fact, I think the recent move down in oil prices, the collapse in oil prices, has got a lot of people expecting a lot less inflation due to lower oil prices. And of course, they're completely wrong. We're going to get walloped uh, by the worst um, you know, inflation uh, outbreak we've ever had. And so that makes sense that bonds would be peaking just as we're about to get a big acceleration in inflation. And this fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus are precisely the type of policy mix uh, that would cause this to happen. 
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. But of course, the payroll tax is not the only stimulus that they're discussing. One of the other rumors that I heard was there was going to be some type of federally funded uh, mandatory or you know sick leave so that people who uh, get the coronavirus can stay home from work but not miss a paycheck. And I've talked about it on this podcast many times that many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and they have a lot of debt and so we need to keep those paychecks coming now this would be a disaster if this was passed especially if they had to cave in to the democrats which of course trump needs to do we can't get any uh kind of fiscal stimulus through the house of representatives unless the democrats that control the house sign on to it and they may exact a heavy toll uh, when it comes to uh, what they require. And, you know, I know that they have long wanted some type of mandatory sick leave uh, to require all employers to provide uh, sick leave. And maybe they're going to have the, go- the government step in to cover the cost or cover some portion of the cost of this mandatory sick leave. So we may actually get this enacted, but it wouldn't be a temporary situation. I think it might be a permanent new Uh, government mandate associated with employment, which would be a major disaster because by increasing the cost of employing people, you end up uh, employing fewer people. And of course, if it covers all employees, it is a de facto increase in the minimum wage because in addition to the federal minimum wage, if you also have to provide your employee with these mandated benefits, that effectively increases the cost of the minimum wage. Now, when you're talking about higher paid workers, employers could simply reduce their salary in order to make room uh, for the uh, you know paid sick leave. But if you're already paying the minimum wage, there's no room to reduce the salary to make up for the extra cost of the mandated benefit. So all you can do is fire people. And of course, that's what happens, right? Everybody likes to think they're getting something for nothing. But to the extent that your employer is required to compensate you with paid leave, uh, then he's going to have to compensate you with lower wages because it's ultimately your own productivity that has to cover your costs. And, you know, your productivity doesn't go up because the government passes a law. So if your productivity is the same and the government says that your employer must pay some of your wages in a particular benefit and you have no choice, you take that benefit, then he has to make it up uh, by paying you less uh, for your actual labor as far as your cash uh, wages are concerned. So it isn't a net gain, uh, but it is a net loss because people now have 
uh, less freedom to choose how they want to be compensated because the government has now mandated uh, a portion of the compensation be paid in a certain way. And again, for some people, they don't have a choice because they just end up losing their jobs. But here is another big problem with this mandated leave, uh, especially if you end up having the government picking up the bill, right? And the government is going to be uh, directly compensating workers uh, if you know they're sick and so they can't go to work, is that you have a massive uh, potential for rampant fraud in such a system, right? Because you know obviously a lot of people have jobs that they don't particularly like. I mean they're not fun, uh, but they go to work because they need the money. I mean they'd rather have a vacation, uh, but you know they have to pay the bills. And most people aren't going to just fake being sick because even if they miss work, they're not going to get paid. And so while they may enjoy missing work, if they need that paycheck, which most Americans do, well, you know, they got to go to work. They can't just pretend to be sick if they're not going to get paid. But if the government says everybody gets whatever it is, two weeks, three weeks of paid sick leave every year, I don't know, whatever it's going to be. And if you're going to get paid and you don't have to go to work, I mean, that's a twofer right? Everybody's going to want that. Everybody's going to want to get a paid vacation. All you have to do is pretend you're sick. Now, sure, there are going to be some people who are actually sick, but a lot of people are just going to fake being sick. I mean, maybe they need to get some doctor to say that, that they're sick and there'll be a cottage industry and doctors saying that people are sick. And of course, you know, the sickness will probably extend to mental illness, which is even easier to fake than, than an actual illness. And a lot of times, you know, maybe you can't even question the employee. You know, if he says he's sick, he's sick. You can't really, you know, try to further uh, inflict uh, emotional stress on a sick person by questioning the validity of their, of their sick leave. So you open up this massive window for fraud. And so whatever the government is budgeting to cover the cost of the program, the costs are going to be much higher because a lot more people are going to be sick than what the government thinks because people are going to pretend to be sick in order to get the benefit. But the other cost of all these people pretending to be sick is that businesses aren't going to have their workers. I mean, even if the business itself isn't picking up the cost, even if the taxpayer is picking it up, well, you have a disruption if a lot of key employees aren't there because they're, they're, they're having a paid vacation masquerading as a sick leave. So now businesses have to deal with those extra costs and they pass those on to consumers. So the whole thing is terrible economics, but we may just get it because Donald Trump is desperate for a stimulus because he's trying to buy himself a second term. And since the Democrats hold any stimulus hostage, well, they're going to have to pass a stimulus plan that is very left, that is very Keynesian, that is very, you know, non-growth and just, you know, helicopter type money. And it's also going to have these uh, labor laws that are going to, you know, supposedly put the workers first, but in reality are going to put the workers last by increasing the cost to employers of hiring workers and therefore diminishing their wages and their employment opportunities. But it's not just stimulus for individuals that is being thrown around. There were all sorts of rumors coming out today of bailouts for industries that are being negatively impacted uh, by the economic slowdown from the coronavirus. This is exactly what I suggested might happen on yesterday's podcast. First of all, 
I was hearing about bailouts for the oil industry. Of course, nobody wants to use the word bailout because, you know, that's got a stigma based on the 2008 financial bailout. So they're not calling it a bailout. They're just calling it federal aid, you know, federal help, which, of course, is coded for a bailout. But they're talking about bailing out the oil industry. And one of the, the ways that I'm hearing, again, is exactly what I was guessing yesterday, some type of debt relief or some type of moratorium or debt guarantee or something like that, which is in reality, not just a bailout of the oil industry, it's a bailout of the banks. Because when you bail out somebody who is in debt, who wouldn't really be able to pay back their loans, the real bailout goes to whoever loaned the money, in this case, the banks. So already, right, the government is talking about a bank bailout, just like the bank bailouts we had in 2008. Only they're not going to say they're doing it for the banks. They're going to say they're doing it for the oil industry. But it's simply going to allow the oil industry to repay loans to the banks. So it's really a backdoor bailout for the banks. And it's already starting, right? It's 2008 all over again, except this is going to be much bigger because there's a lot more bad debt uh, than just the mortgage debt that we had in, in, in 2008. But again, they're not just talking about the oil industry. They're talking about bailouts for airlines, bailouts for hotels, bailouts for cruise ships. And again, a lot of this has to do with the loans. So it's bailout for the lenders, again, the banks. But you know, the irony about bailing out the cruise ships is none of these are even American companies. I mean, sure, a lot of these cruise liners, you know, they trade on the New York Stock Exchange. But all the companies are incorporated, you know, somewhere, you know, in the Caribbean or something like that. None of these are U.S. corporations. And the reason they're not U.S. corporations is because if any of these companies were based in the U.S. and if their cruise ships were flagged in the U.S., they couldn't compete. They'd be out of business. It would be so expensive to take a cruise that nobody would cruise or they would simply cruise on foreign competitors. It's the you know, U.S. Merchant Marine, the labor laws, the Jones Act. There's all these things that have basically destroyed all the employment opportunities for Americans to work on cruise ships. I mean, the only way that you can operate a cruise ship is to operate it outside of America with a non-American crew. Right. I mean, you might have a few Americans on there, you know, independent contractors, maybe, you know, the guys that are performing in the band or something like that. But all the, the, the regular crew, the guys in the kitchen, the, the people that clean the rooms, you know, all, the, all those guys, none of them are American. Right. There's no way any company could afford to pay uh, the wages that we mandate and the benefits that we mandate and, and still uh, have a competitive product. So how are we going to bail out these companies? Now, I know that a lot of these Democrats, they don't like this, right? They don't like the fact that all of these companies are getting around U.S. labor laws uh, by, you know, flagging their ships with uh, foreign foreign flags. So I have a feeling to the extent that there is any bailout money provided to the cruise industry, that it's gonna come with some strings attached. That there may be some type of regulation that subjects these cruise liners to more regulation, whether it's labor regulation, I don't know what it might be, but I bet if there is anything, there's gonna be a big cost and if the cruise industry ends up, you know, making a deal with the devil uh, in order to save itself, uh, it's going to come back to bite them. And of course, any new regulations that end up getting imposed on the cruise industry uh, as a quid pro quo for a bailout of the industry will, of course, increase the cost 
of taking a cruise because whatever rules and regulations they end up being subjected to in the future, complying with those rules and regulations is going to cost money. And if it's going to cost more money to comply, it's going to cost more money to buy a ticket uh, to, to cruise. But anyway, all of this talk about stimulus and bailouts, right, that is what is responsible for today's big rally. Uh, that and the fact that we had a huge drop yesterday. And so normally when there is a big drop on a Monday, you get a bounce on a Tuesday. In fact, reversal Tuesday is what you call it. Uh, Tuesdays are uh, notorious for reversing big moves that occur on the preceding Monday. And this time we had a lot of turnarounds on Tuesday. We had the gap up, then we reversed that by filling the gap and going negative. And then we had another reversal where we wrapped but I would just throw out any of these moves. These are contra trend moves, as was the reversal Tuesday in the dollar. We had a big rally uh, in the dollar. And the same thing in uh, the bond market. We had a reversal Tuesday drop in bonds. Now, of all the reversal Tuesday moves, the only one that potentially could be significant is the one today if we end up with a blow-off top, island top, uh, in the bond market, and we've we've basically uh, peaked a 40-year bubble. But it's still a little premature to make this call. This has been a massive bull market, and uh, you know the graveyards are littered with people who have tried to call uh, the top in the bond market. But I'll have to say that it looks you know suspicious that it, this could be it. But we need to look at a few more days to see if we can really validate. Uh, that as a blow off top. So of all these Tuesday reversals, that's the one that has the most potential to be a real reversal. I think all the other moves are simply counter trend rallies or sell offs uh, in the underlying trend. So for the stock market, it's just a rally in a bear market. And for the US dollar, uh, it's also a rally in the bear market, or so for the currencies, it's a decline in a bull market. And for gold, again, gold had a down day, a sell-off correction of a, of a bull market. Oh, I don't want to forget last and certainly least Bitcoin. Bitcoin also had a reversal Tuesday rally today. As I'm speaking, Bitcoin is trading just above 8,000. I think I saw it, you know, I don't know if it got to 8,200, 8,100 and something. Uh, so a bit of a rally, but it's interesting uh, that Bitcoin is trading in a pretty high correlation now with the overall stock market, right? When the stock market goes down, Bitcoin goes down more. When the stock market goes up, Bitcoin goes up less. That's basically how it's operating because today's rally is pretty pathetic uh, considering how big yesterday's drop was uh, and how big today's rally was in the stock market. It's certainly not correlated with gold. If anything, it's inversely correlated with gold because gold got clobbered today with all the safe havens, right? The Swiss franc got clobbered today. The yen got clobbered today. Treasuries got clobbered, even though I don't consider them a safe haven. Most people do. Gold got clobbered. So all the safe havens went down today. Bitcoin went up. Bitcoin behaved like a risk asset today, except it didn't go up nearly as much as all the other risk assets. So I'm really not sure of the value proposition that you get from Bitcoin, right? Because if it is, in fact, a risk asset, it's not a non-correlated asset because it seems to be correlated, right? It's a risk asset. But if it's a risk asset that goes down more when risk assets go down and it goes up less 
when risk assets go up, what the hell good is that? I mean, why have this in your portfolio? It adds absolutely nothing. You know, I meant to mention this. I forgot in the last couple of uh, podcasts when I talked about Bitcoin, but there was this conference uh, in Las Vegas. Somebody sent me the link and I found the one little section that pertained to me. But they had their own version of, uh, you know, the Academy Awards and they called them the Scammy Awards. And there was an award for the most clueless uh, Bitcoin non-coiner. And the nominees were Nouriel Rabini, Paul Klugman, um, Warren Buffett, and yours truly, me. Uh, those were the four nominees. And guess who won? If you're not sure, I have the whole thing on my uh, YouTube channel. The title is, and the winner is, and it's only like a minute long because I just, I just cut out the award uh, and the announcements of the nominees and the announcement of the winner. So you'll get a kick out of that. Uh, but you know, these guys are completely clueless. Everybody in the Bitcoin world is totally dismissing, right? All of the evidence that Bitcoin is not what it was supposed to be, yet people are so wedded to their beliefs that no matter how much evidence that they see that they're wrong, they keep ignoring it. Want to finish up though, just a little bit of political talk. Number one, Joe Biden. Right, Joe Biden, you know, now the favorite by far uh, to win the Democratic nomination, and he is the favorite to win the White House. In fact, Biden has an opportunity to really sew up the Democratic nomination tonight. We got six states that are holding their primaries tonight, probably the most significant battleground being Michigan. And the reason I think Michigan is a potentially interesting race is A, Sanders won in Michigan four years ago against Hillary Clinton. But also, too, I think that if there's a state where the Democratic socialist message may resonate, it's with uh, Bernie Sanders. You certainly have a lot of people that have been uh, unemployed or put out of work uh, because of international trade, because of regulations and big government. Of course, Sanders won't frame it that way. Uh, he'll be able to try to appeal uh, to these people on a different level and try to blame uh, capitalism and hold government off as the, as the solution to these problems. Uh, but to the extent that Sanders can win in Michigan, well, then maybe there's still a horse race here. But I think if he loses there, I mean, that's pretty much it for the Sanders campaign. But in any event, after tonight is over, if Biden wins as expected, then pretty much uh, we'll have an answer to the question of who the Democratic nominee will be. The next question is, well, who is he going to pick for VP? And I happen to notice on the predicted sites the top 12 potential uh, nominees, right? Of the top 12, 11 of them are women, 11 out of 12. And in fact, there's only one guy in the top 12 and that's Pete Buttigieg, right? And he's, he's number seven. And if you think about it, I mean, yeah, he's a man, but he's a homosexual man. So he's kind of in between, right? So there's no straight men in the top 12. You just have one gay man and 11 women. That's it. Now, clearly, Joe Biden has decided that whoever he picks for vice president is going to be a woman. He is not considering any men. I mean, I doubt he's even considering Pete Buttigieg, right? And in fact, you know, the top two women that are being considered are Kamala Harris 
and Amy Klobuchar, right? Those are the two top choices, right? Now, why are those the top choices? It's because they're women. He has decided that he wants a woman. Obviously, there are men that are just as qualified to be vice president, right, as all these women. So how can Joe Biden say, I am going to pick a woman and I'm not even going to consider a man? I mean, isn't that sexism to do that? To say, I am going to pick my president, vice presidential nomination based entirely on gender? That yes, maybe he'll take the woman who he thinks is the best, but if there's a man that he thinks is better, he's not even going to consider the man because he's only going to consider a woman. Now, I realize that if in the judgment of uh, Joe Biden, it's not that the woman would make a better vice president, because I don't think that's why people get appointed vice president. It's not like the president or the guy who has the nomination is thinking about who could I pick that would actually do the best job as vice president, or if something happens to me, and certainly when you got a Joe Biden, somebody as old as Biden, I mean, he could die of natural causes in office or you know become incapacitated. So instead of thinking about who would do the best job if they actually became president, that's not really what uh, people are looking at. They're saying, which candidate can I add to the ticket that will most improve my odds of winning. That's really the criteria. And maybe based on the way the political winds are blowing, right? Joe Biden has decided or has figured out that putting a woman on the ticket actually increases his chances of winning better than putting a man. And it doesn't even matter which woman, as long as it's a woman, right? So if he has decided based on polling or whatever they've done, that having any woman on the ticket, right, uh, makes, gives him a better chance of winning than having a man, then as far as I'm concerned, that's fine, right? Because, you know, he's decided that women are giving him a better chance. But based on the standards that the Democrats like to use uh, to judge discrimination or disparate impact, you can't do that. If you've got 12 people on your short list and 11 of them are women and one of them's a gay guy, that's sexism. You're discriminating against men. This is gender-based discrimination. You are denying men the opportunity to be under consideration for vice president. It doesn't matter that women are more qualified at making the ticket a, a more winnable ticket because, hey, you know, you don't get that in the private sector. You can't make the argument, well, hey, I just, I just determined that, you know, hiring men was better than hiring women. I decided not to hire any women because I thought that my business would make more money if I just hired men. The government wouldn't accept that excuse. You try to make that excuse in a lawsuit, you're going to lose. So how can Joe Biden say, well, I'm just excluding all men because I, I know that I'm going to do better if I hire a woman, so I'm not going to hire a man. No, this is de facto sexism, uh, gender bias. Where are the lawsuits? Why aren't some of the guys? What about Cory Booker? You know, you know, what about Beto O'Rourke? What about Andy Yang or some of these other guys? that were, Why don't they just file a lawsuit and say, hey, you're, this is sexism. You're denying me a chance at a job simply on the basis of my, of my sex. Of course, it'll never happen because it's a double standard, right? It's all 
hypocrisy. Sexism is okay as long as this sexist discrimination is in favor of women. So you can discriminate against men all you want, and that's perfectly fine. But the minute you discriminate against women, even if there's a valid reason for that discrimination, oh, now it's, it's sexism, now it's gender-based discrimination, and you're going to get sued. And the final uh, political point I want to make, I was watching the Fox News uh, Bernie Sanders town hall. And one of the things that in particular that I want to talk about, in fact, the only thing, because I, I don't want to spend you know, an, a long time on this, uh, especially since I'm trying to do more podcasts and, and keep the lengths uh, a little shorter. So I'm just going to comment on one of the things that he said. Uh, he was asked about Sweden, right? And of course, Bernie Sanders is constantly, you know, talking about Sweden as the poster uh, country for the democratic socialism that he wants to emulate, where everything is free, right? Everybody gets free education, free health care. There's all this free stuff. And Sweden is supposedly the democratic socialist country that Bernie Sanders most admires and he wants to emulate, right? So he was asked a question on Sweden and somebody you know, pointed out their taxes and his answer, I mean, I was laughing. He basically said that he is not an expert on the Swedish economy, nor is he familiar with the Swedish tax system. So if he's saying America should be more like Sweden, don't you think that he would have actually familiarized himself with Sweden a little bit? I mean, take a look at their tax code. Take a look at, you know, their economy. I mean, if you're saying America needs to be more like Sweden, shouldn't you know a little bit about Sweden? Shouldn't you study Sweden just a little bit before you hold it up as an example of what we're aspiring to? And of course, had Sanders actually studied any of the Swedish tax system, he would realize that it's exactly the opposite of what he wants. He doesn't want us to be anything like Sweden. First of all, in Sweden, there is zero estate tax. They abolished it a long time ago, zero. No gift tax, no inheritance tax. Sanders wants to raise the gift, the inheritance tax that we have. He wants to raise it significantly. But if he wanted us to be like Sweden, he would have to abolish it completely, the opposite of what he wants to do. Sanders wants to really jack up corporations. He wants corporations to pay more. Well, in Sweden, corporations pay less. The corporate tax rate in Sweden is just 22%. It's one of the lowest corporate taxes in the world. So he doesn't want to emulate that. What Sweden does have that's very high is a VAT tax, right? Which is basically a national sales tax. It's 25%. It's one of the highest in the world. Does he want to have that in the United States? If he wants to make America like Sweden, he's going to have to impose a massive national SAS tax. He doesn't want to do that. He just wants to tax the rich. Except in Sweden, they don't tax the rich. They tax the middle class. You know, the capital gains tax rate and the dividend tax rate in Sweden is 30%. That's not that bad. Sanders wants to tax capital gains and dividends at the same rate as ordinary income. But in Sweden, the capital gains tax and dividend tax, again, is 30%, but the top marginal income tax on earned income is 56.9%. So Sweden taxes labor income at almost twice as much as it taxes capital income. That's not what Bernie Sanders wants. He wants to do the opposite. He wants to probably tax capital gains and dividends more than he taxes uh, corporations. But the crazy thing about it is that top 
tax bracket is basically a flat because it applies to everybody whose income is more than 1.5 times the national average. That's all it takes to get into the top 56.9% income tax bracket. So if you think about that, I, you know, let's say uh, the average income in the US is 40,000. I actually think it's lower than that, but let's just say it's 40. That means to make one and a half times that, you'd have to be making 60,000 a year. So what if everybody who made more than $60,000 a year was in the 56.9% tax bracket? Because that's what we'd have to do to make America like Sweden. So in other words, if Bernie Sanders really wants America to be Sweden, we have to dramatically lower taxes on uh, the rich by eliminating the estate tax, and we have to leave the tax on capital gains and dividends where it is, and we have to massively increase taxes on the middle class by raising their tax bracket and by imposing a brand new value added tax. That is what all of this free stuff costs, right? If you really want the government to provide you with health care, if you really want all the stuff that Sweden is providing its citizens, then the citizens themselves are going to pay through the nose for that stuff. Mm-hmm.